We read from Scripture this morning, Romans 10. Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him, in him, they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. We read that far in God's Word. We consider this morning the truth of the Word of God 
found in Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 23. But what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life? How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that Though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, to understand and appreciate this Lord's Day, we need to understand and appreciate the subject. The subject is one that we know theologically to be called justification by faith. To put it another way, if you were to try to explain justification by faith to someone else, this would be one of the Lord's days that you would turn to if you wanted to know yourself what that doctrine meant you would turn to you would need to turn to Lord's Day 23 now it's not exactly an exhaustive treatment and that is why the subject will continue it will treat the truth of justification by faith alone in connection with the truth of sanctification and we may even take note that this is not exactly a new subject either part of what shows the importance of this doctrine is that the subject matter has been alluded to a number of times in various Lord's days and we must also see that importance therefore of this subject one that comes up time and time again and in that regard, I could point to many, many things to demonstrate the importance of this particular doctrine. For example, I could point to the fact that this was the main issue of dispute at the time of the Reformation. In many ways, one could say that the Reformation was caused by the fact that the church had apostatized with regard to this specific doctrine. And the Reformers were willing to give their life they were willing to be martyrs to teach the truth of 
this Word of God. Showing too, therefore, that the importance is related also then to the people of God and their life. And that's what I want to just emphasize for a short second to you. If one were to look at and explain the importance of this, one could say it's a matter of life and death, a matter of salvation or damnation. And that would be according to Scripture. It's not simply, as the Reformers noted, that this is the doctrine that marks the difference between a true and false church. If you want to know the difference between a true and false church, one simply has to ask what they teach about justification. And then, even after they say, we believe in justification by faith alone, by asking what they mean by that. And what they mean by that is the difference between a true-false church. A church, therefore, where there is salvation or no salvation. Where there is salvation or condemnation. And the Scriptures bear that out time and time again, and it's one reason we read the passage that we did. The Apostle begins with a prayer for the salvation of Israel. That means they're not saved. When the Apostle Paul looks out over his own nation, his own people, consisting of millions and millions of human beings, and he evaluates them in the light of the Word of God, he has to conclude they're not saved, and so he prays that they might be saved. Then he goes on to explain why he makes that assessment. And the answer in short is because they're not justified by faith. Because the vast majority of the nation of Israel, God's people, those who claimed to be God's servants and His church believed they were justified some other way. It had to do with their righteousness before God. And the Apostle says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Willingly ignorant, of course. And that righteousness concerned their salvation. He uses those terms interchangeably in that passage. Go look. How many times he mentions righteousness and then salvation? They're used interchangeably. And the problem is they went about to establish their own righteousness. <clears throat> and thus they were not saved. And that ultimately is explained why they were before God as a disobedient and gainsaying people. There was a refusal to believe in being righteous before God in another way than establishing their own righteousness. That's the importance of it. That's the importance of salvation or damnation, of life or death. And with that in mind, let's consider this subject under the theme righteous before God. And we'll ask three questions about it. What is it? How it is received? And when it is enjoyed? <clears throat> it is striking that we talk about justification by faith we are talking about being righteous before God. That's what we're talking about. You will notice that that's the emphasis. It's not even on that word justification. That's simply the name we give to this subject matter. But when it comes to the content of the subject matter, it is always put in terms of being righteous. What is the prophet that thou believest all this? That I am righteous in Christ... Before God. Notice that. Before God. How art thou righteous? Before God. That's the great question. The great question that justification by faith answers is that question. Notice, it's that question. Nothing else. 
The question really isn't when and how as such, but what is it? What is it to be justified? What is it to be justified by faith? And one can answer simply by saying, it is to be righteous before God. Now if we break that down, then we can understand better what it means. It is to be righteous. Righteousness is a moral quality. Righteousness is to be right with or before God. That is, it is a judgment concerning all of your thoughts, words, and deeds that you commit or do in your body or soul. It has to do with a judgment concerning everything that you do, whether it's in your mind and heart, in your will, or externally with your body. And it's a judgment of whether those things are right or wrong, good or evil. It is a moral virtue. Now, it's righteousness before God. That is, whether what I think and do and what I will and how I behave, how is that right in the judgment of God as God sees it? In this particular issue, the sinner stands before God. No one else. Not really. Doesn't have to do with my judgment of them or your judgment of them or other people's judgment of them, but God's judgment of them. And then understand righteous before God concerns God's judgment of them according to His standard. And when you ask what the standard is, the answer is God Himself. That's why it's often referred to as the righteousness of God. Now we're going to pour some meaning into that, but when we talk about being righteous before God, we're talking about the righteousness of God, and therefore He is the standard. God looks at Himself. And God looks at His own thoughts, His own words, His own deeds, His own will, His own life. And He says, now, how do you compare? Do you match? Do you match? Do you measure up? And God says yes or no. Now, when one is righteous before God, God says that you match, you fit, you meet the standard, or you don't. But in righteousness before God, God says that your life is in perfect harmony and conformity with my life. What I love, you love. What I will, you will. What I desire to be done, you have done. And, and now you understand that when it comes to us, to be righteous before God involves really two things. And that because, of course, we are sinners. When we talk about being righteous before God, it involves in the first place that God must expunge all that is not in harmony, all that is sinful, all that does not match, all that does not measure up. We're assuming now, for sake of argument and explanation, 
that when I stand before God, and God brings before His mind, and remember there, it's before God, so again, it's not only according to the judgment of God, but it's according to what God sees and not me. Because when I look at myself, I forget all kinds of things. I have my own judgment about my deeds and behaviors and thoughts. Not only do I forget so much of what I've done or not done, and every now and then it might flash before our eyes in times of trouble and distress, and then we remember all the things we've done, but God sees them all. God sees them all, everything. Even the deep, deep secrets. He knows, and He judges those. Then he measures them up according to his own standard that, of course, what God sees is sin. In fact, what God sees is that nothing measures up. And so, being righteous before God consists in the first place that God must remove those sins, expunge them, remove the guilt and the shame of them. God God must make them disappear. Otherwise, they're there. And I'm not righteous before God. When we understand what righteousness before God is, we must understand that I stand then before God and according to His judgment, I've never sinned. Not once. In the judgment of God, God says, nope, there is not one single sin there. I've looked. I've looked at every thought, every word, every deed. I've looked at those that have been done consciously or unconsciously. I've looked at all the behavior from the moment of birth to the time of death. I've looked at it all. I've examined it thoroughly. I've done that in a way that you cannot do. And when I look, I don't, I don't see any sin or misdeeds. That's the first part. And the second, which also follows, and one that we sometimes forget because we realize that to be righteous before God is to have the forgiveness of sins. God forgives my sins. That's how He expunges them. So justification by faith alone is very closely related to the forgiveness of sins. It is God's forgiveness of me. But there's more, you see, because God demands what is right. He doesn't simply demand that we do no wrong, but we do what is right. And so, in the second place, to be righteous before God is God looks at me and says, and you've done everything that I've required. Everything. Not only do I see no sin, but when I look, all I see is good. All I see is what is right. What I, what I see is perfection. And now, Here's where the law of God comes in. If we ask for the exact standard, the standard is actually God Himself, but God has given us a law as a reflection of that standard. It's, it's God's Word about what His will is, what His standard is. The two parts. And notice, will you please, that that law is summarized as love. That is, when we're talking about righteousness before God and the measure of right and wrong and all that, it all concerns love. What God looks at in your heart and in your will and in your soul, what God looks at with regard to your behavior, all concerns that one word, love. That's what God's examining. God looks at your heart and your soul and your will and all your behavior and He asks one question. Do you love me and do you love your neighbor as yourself? Yes or no? 
Well, sometimes. No. No. The standard is with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and in all your deeds. Then the answer is always no, of course, isn't it? But I want to bring that before your mind that the great standard that God uses is perfect love. We, we, we judge even there all kinds of standards, don't we? It should be humbling for us, should it not? What would we do if we would just examine ourselves in this regard? We're not even God. But ask yourself, do you really love your wife with all of your being and your children? We're not going to talk now beyond that too much. But let's look at our closest neighbor. And let's look at ourselves sort of as God would see us. And, and let's remind ourselves that God, when He judges righteousness, is simply looking at how we love our spouse <laughs> or our children or our neighbor in the pew, all of the neighbors in the pew, right? God doesn't say just love some of them, but love all of them. And then, and then when we go to God, love God. Not just... Remember, when you talk about justification by faith alone, you talk about being righteous before God, the object of all of it, the, the standard of righteousness is God's love. God's love in His own being, in His own persons, and how God deals with Himself and then, and then with everyone else. There's the standard. Now, now you understand perhaps why when it comes be, be, to being righteous before God, there, there's only two ways. Only two. There's only two ways to be righteous before God. And for sake of emphasis, I'm going to remind you that there's only one possible way. But there's two, at least theoretically possible ways, you might say. And one is you actually do what God says. That, that's what the Bible always refers to as righteousness of the law or by the law. This is what the apostle is referring to when he's talking about establishing one's own righteousness. One's own righteousness. Or what later on when he talks about the righteousness of the law. What, what is that? The man that doeth these things shall live. In other words, if one is to stand before God in the judgment and live, or if one is to stand before God in their life, as you do now. If you're going to stand before God in any way whatsoever, stand before God in prayer, if stand before God in your conscience, stand before God in any way whatsoever. And remember, every person stands before God, whether they recognize it or not, then one way is to present perfect righteousness yourself that you've done. Now, <clears throat> believe it or not, that is what the natural human being does. That's what we do. That's what depravity does. It stands before God and says, look what I've done. Or look what I've not done. See, I meet the law. I've done what the law requires. It actually dares to stand before God and claim that. It actually dares stand before God and say, I've done righteousness, and so I'm righteous. We call that works righteousness. It 
opens up the hands and the palms and it presents before God what one has thought and what one has willed. And it says, see, look, it's good. Now that's one possible way. But as I said, it's, it's an impossibility. It's utter foolishness. What Paul is saying about the Israelites, he calls folly, he calls stubbornness, he calls it gainsaying, disobedience, and it's of the highest sort. Do, do you realize that when one does that, one is actually standing before God in rebellion? One is doing that not really ignorantly, doing it in full knowledge and against a testimony. And that testimony, you see, is the conscience. God has given to every man, woman, and child a conscience. And that conscience testifies what one does and thinks and wills according to the judgment of God. It is God's own voice in an individual. And you understand now, that voice is true. It is right. And so it testifies all the time, continually. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Not righteous, not righteous, not righteous. Go to church, go home, think about church, think about presenting your deeds to God. Here, God, look at what I've brought. Look at these good works. Declare me righteous. And the conscience says, nope. No. Now you understand that explains why the world lives its life trying to kill the conscience, drown the conscience in drugs and alcohol, eliminate the conscience. People will kill themselves to eliminate the voice of that conscience because it's the way God made people. And you understand that one day that conscience will be opened up and will testify and condemn every man every man, woman, and child who is going to stand before God and make the same claims that they've made in all their life is in the judgment going to stand before God and God's going to say, let's listen to the tape. We're going to listen now to your conscience. And we're going to hear what your conscience has said. Oh, you've tried to kill that conscience and dull that conscience. And that conscience has become very, very, very hard so its voice is not very loud, but it's there. Let's hear what that says. And that voice, of course, is their own voice. And they will be condemned by their own voice, which will say, not righteous. Not righteous before God. Guilty. Every single one of the things that you present to me as to why I should see you as righteous, fall short. Fall woefully short. Now you understand that that's just not with regard to other people, but even the regenerated child of God. The regenerated child of God has this problem. Even when a child of God believes that he's righteous before God, there is the testimony of the conscience. Oh yes, even when he believes by faith, he's righteous before God with God's own righteousness and not his own. Even then, the conscience is always testifying guilty. Your good works, filled with sin. And that is why it's talked about so much here in Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 23 is establishing the great need of righteousness before God. And it's doing that to believers who believe they're righteous before God. Understand that. In other words, what it's establishing is something that is a continual need. I know. The Scriptures also speak of being justified and having peace. Believing one is righteous, so that one is indeed righteous before God. But the problem is, the conscience don't shut up. 
We remain totally depraved. We remain sinners, even as righteous before God. And the conscience is always saying, ungodly, wicked, sinner, condemned, you must die. And so there is also always this need to be righteous before God, to be justified, and to know that, to hear that. And that never comes by obedience to the law. It never comes by anything that you do. Anytime you stand before God in the testimony of that conscience and say, well, what about this and what about that? The conscience will condemn it. So the only other possibility of being righteous before God is God gives you a righteousness that's not your own. That's why we talk sometimes of an alien righteousness. That is an alien righteousness from my perspective. It's not found in me. It didn't come from me. Its source isn't from me. It comes from outside of me. That word will often show up. Outside. We look for salvation and righteousness outside of ourselves. Not in ourselves. Now it's in there by faith, of course. But what they mean is, it has to come from somewhere else. Now, let's talk about that some more. How do we receive it? That's the great question, right? And the answer of the catechism is by faith. But before we do that, we, we, we need to look and realize you can answer this question from two perspectives. And understanding this is helpful to avoid confusion about justification by faith alone. There is confusion even in the Protestant Reformed churches about this. So I'm going to try to make it as plain as I can. When you talk about receiving righteousness from God, you can look at it from two perspectives, from God Himself and from ourselves. Sometimes we call it objective or subjective. That you can look at being righteous before God or justified before God by faith from the perspective of God. And that's a valid perspective that's found in Scripture, and sometimes even that word justification is referring to that. And if I can make it simple and plain, what we're talking about is now that righteousness that I receive, where does that come from? We're talking about God now and how He provides it. Not so much how I receive it, but how He provides it. Because being righteous before God has to do with God. It's all about an act of God. It's all about what God does and what God gives and what God provides. And so it's important to ask, well, how does God do that? Now we're not talking so much about faith. We're, we're talking about objectively. And again, you can look at that from a number of different perspectives. Number one, the righteousness that God gives to us so that we are righteous before God, is God's own righteousness. So you can talk about that. It is about God. And, and this is why, oftentimes, it's referred to as the righteousness of God. Now, it's the righteousness of God that God provides me, but the righteousness God provides me is His own righteousness. And this is exactly how the church is brought before God to consider that. And it explains also why where the doctrine and truth of righteousness by faith alone or righteous before God is corrupted, there you will find often an idol of God. When the church looks at, oftentimes, the righteousness of God in the light of God's Word, it is an awesome, majestic righteousness and when you read sometimes, this explains why sometimes when you read the Scriptures and God judges human beings very, very harshly, and you look at what happens, 
You look at the slaying of men, women, and children, and you go, kind of harsh. Did they really deserve that? That's God flashing His righteousness. When you see the whole world, whole world destroyed, men, women, and children screaming in agony and pain as they drown. And what you see is God's righteousness. It is an awesome righteousness. That's why you must be righteous before God to stand there. And the person that tries to stand there holding out their own good works is a fool. A perfect standard characterized in amazing terms of light and power and judgment. But it's that which becomes ours. Now, again, when you look at being righteous and the righteousness that God gives to us, it has to be located somewhere. And you say, well, it's in God. No! Do you, do you understand that for us to be righteous before God, God has to do something? God has to locate that righteousness even in another. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in. It is amazing, therefore, when one looks at this and asks, well, what is this righteousness? Notice the answer. It isn't simply the righteousness of God, but it's the righteousness of God in Christ. And if you ask, what is that righteousness? The answer is, it is the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. What's it getting at? It's getting at this, that when God gives to us this righteousness and what it consists of, it's not simply God saying, well, it's the perfection of my own being in some sort of abstraction. No. God looks at the righteousness as it's found in Jesus Christ and the man, Jesus Christ. In other words, for us to be righteous before God, God must give His only begotten Son, who is God and only God, and filled with God's righteousness, He must become man. And that man now must be righteous. And righteous now according to the law. That's the amazing thing. And the Catechism says it consists of His obedience and His satisfaction, His perfect love, so that one cannot even think about being righteous before God without looking at Christ. When we say we're righteous before God by faith, the only way that that can be is if you look at God through Christ. Look at God any other way and you will only find condemnation. Why is that? And the answer fundamentally is because the righteousness that God gives us is Christ's. In other words, God looked at everything He thought and did. Everything. Including His death. Where He's suffering under God's own wrath for sins that were not His. God says, He loved me perfectly. And He loved His neighbor perfectly. Everywhere I look and everything that He's done, everything from beginning to end is perfect. Just what it's supposed to be. You see how that changes things a little bit. And that's part of being righteous before God. The righteousness that God gives is that. Now there's more there too. And we can consider that in the light of being righteous from my perspective and your perspective. Because when you look at being righteous before God objectively, 
You talk about things about, well, God's decree. What we call eternal justification. You understand that has to do with what God did objectively. That there had to be a decree of God sometime in eternity that God would do this. And notice it's a decree that God would do this. That's what we're referring to in eternal justification. That's what the Bible's talking when it talks about Jesus being slain from the foundation of the world. It's God's decree to do that. <clears throat> Just like He made a decree to create heavens and earth. That, technically speaking, is not justification by faith alone, the subject here. But it, it is involved in that you're talking about what God did objectively, what God did to prepare all this and make it possible. And you can talk about even justification, therefore, at the cross. When is it that someone objectively was justified? The answer is at the cross. That's when those sins were actually expunged and taken care of. That's where... Paul's graphic words right in the book of Romans, God actually looks at us. We are in Christ. We're baptized into Him. God sees us in Him. And where God, declaring what He does about Christ, says the same thing about you and me who are in Him. But again, when you look at it objectively, the answer is, where did it happen? Objectively, the answer is at the cross. But justification by faith alone is talking about something else. It's talking about how now that becomes mine. How do I receive that? How does that go from there to me? To me? And the answer is by faith. Now we're talking subjectively. And even then, when you get into that, just to emphasize how this is all a work of God, an act of God, justification is God's act and God's work, notice Romans 10 and what it emphasizes. Now the answer is we're justified by faith. That is, faith believes it. If you ask why and how, or how, the righteousness of Christ becomes mine, the answer is you believe it. That's it. Not more complicated than that. By faith I am joined to Him legally. By faith I am joined to Him in a bond, an inseparable bond. And by faith I come to know and learn these things and trust in Christ so that I believe I'm righteous not because of what I've done or not on the basis of anything I've done but what Christ has done alone. That's, faith just believes it. But then notice the Apostle says, but where did that come from? Well, it comes from hearing. That means justification by faith alone can be looked at objectively and that God must declare this. And that's really what justification by faith alone is. That's what we're talking about when we say we're righteous before God. We're talking about what God says, what God speaks, what God declares. It is God's declaration, you are righteous. Your sins are gone. They are forgiven. And all I see is perfect love. You have perfectly fulfilled every demand and requirement I have made. That's what it is. Now you have to hear that. That means God has to publish it. God has to declare it. That's the Gospel. That's why the Reformers always said justification is the heart of the Gospel. The heart of the Gospel is that declaration of God. Your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake alone. By His grace alone. And you receive it. It becomes yours by faith. And that's why Paul says there's the justification of the law, righteousness by the law, justification righteousness of the law, or this the righteousness of faith. Period. Those two. Those are the options. Those are the only options. 
And the Catechism goes on to explain more that. It is an amazing thing that even though we receive this by faith, don't forget, that the Reformed faith on the basis of Scripture has always said even, even faith itself isn't the basis now. Yes, the Bible talks about faith being accounted as righteousness, but the idea is not this, that God looks at my faith and says, well, that faith now matches the standard. That faith now is the standard. We replace now the law. That's no longer the standard, but there's a new standard. It's, it's faith. And God looks at faith and says, mm, does it match the standard? Yes or no? Oh, and on that basis, I'll declare you righteousness. That the catechism eliminates when it talks about that. What do you mean when you say you're righteous by faith? And it says, not that I'm acceptable to God on the count of the worthiness of my faith. What it's saying there is this. That even when the child of God stands before God in his conscience or in the judgment day, it doesn't really matter. When he stands before God, he doesn't even bring his faith. And say, Lord, see my faith? Isn't it a good faith? Wasn't it a strong faith? Because if you do that, you're going to find out that don't really... It's filled with sin too, right? We, have, we call weak faith. Times where you can hardly find faith. But nevertheless, faith is the means by which we receive it. But it's just the means. You see, that's the nature of faith. Really, you can hardly talk about weak faith. But faith, faith always looks at Christ and only at Christ. If you find yourself looking anywhere else, the answer is it's not faith. And faith so looks at Christ and the righteousness of Christ that it doesn't even take into account its own activity. Faith itself doesn't even say, wow, I'm righteous before God because I know who God is, which is faith the knowledge of God. Faith doesn't look at the fact that it confesses sins. Faith confesses sins. How in the world can you go to God for forgiveness of sins if you don't know what your sins are? Faith confesses sins. Faith says, I'm sorry for my sins. Faith repents of sins. But even then, it never stands before God and says, see, look, look at my repentance. It's a worthy repentance. It meets the standards. No, none of that. Not even the activity of faith, not even the deeds of faith, none of it enters into the equation. And faith won't allow it. Sometimes I think to myself, you don't really even need to preach it, but so depraved are we, we, we think it anyway. But faith doesn't allow it. Faith will, faith will say, I'm righteous only because of what God has done and what God's declared to me. We call that imputation. God simply imputes. He reckons to me what Christ did and says, it's yours. That's how I see you. Now the last point I wish to make briefly is about how it's enjoyed. And that too belongs to justification by faith alone. Why, when the Bible talks about that, as the Apostle does in Romans 3 and 4, Romans 5 turns to peace. If you ask, what chiefly is the great enjoyment of being righteous before God? The answer is peace. Now there's a lot of other things that one could answer too. One of the great benefits of being righteous before God is one, one is moved and empowered to live a holy life before God. That's the next Lord's Day. We'll talk about that in subsequent Lord's Days. You want to know what is the power to new, live a new life. What, what alone motivates someone to love God and their neighbor? The answer is really being righteous before God. Because if one is not that, then everything that one will do will be an attempt to be righteous before God by the law. That's the problem. And then pretty soon the law of God isn't the law of God anymore, and it's just the law of man. 
in the church. What goes for right and wrong is going to be determined by us. It all comes back to being righteous by faith alone with the righteousness of God. But we can summarize this as peace. One stands in peace in the church. One stands at peace in his conscience before God. The conscience says you're a sinner. You're worthy of damnation. And one is at peace. Not now because one has killed the conscience. One is ignoring the conscience. One has a hard conscience. But one simply silences the conscience with the only words that will do that. Those sins are covered. And what God requires of me, I know I fall and fall short. But Christ has provided that for me too. And then there's peace. Always remember that. Your peace, your peace, my peace, doesn't come from anywhere else really than that. Don't base your peace and look for peace in earthly justice and even God's execution of justice in time now or in how people deal with you or how you stand before people. There's no peace in those things. There's only peace. And sometimes study how wonderful peace is when I stand before God righteous by faith alone. Now, the question is, when do you enjoy that? And notice, that's the question. The question isn't, when did God justify me? When were my sins forgiven? The question isn't even, did God have a decree in eternity? But when, when do I enjoy this? And the answer to the Reformation, the answer of Scripture is always the same. When I believe. When I repent and believe. And notice, that's the answer to the question of when I enjoy it. And you know this, and I know this. That it's when, when we stand before God, and God brings a sense to us of our sin and unworthiness, and we find faith fleeing to Jesus Christ, then and only then, do we feel peace and are at peace? Now, it has nothing to do about when God actually forgave my sins. It has nothing to do with whether God decreed it in eternity. It has nothing to do with any of those things as such. God did them. But the question is, how do I know? It really, if I can draw an analogy, it's sort of like this. You might buy a gift for your child for their birthday. You might have bought it a year before the actual birthday and say, I got a gift for my son. But that's not the same as the son saying, when I got my gift. Oh yeah, the, the son might know that indeed mom and dad bought the gift a whole year earlier and, and it's been squirreled away in a closet somewhere, but the child doesn't know that and, and, until actually he receives the gift and maybe mom and dad tell him that. You see, justification, all justification is by faith. God has eternally decreed my justification, but I don't know that except by faith. Otherwise, it's meaningless to me. There's even going to be a justification of you and me in eternity. God will declare whether we're guilty or righteous in the final judgment. That's justification. But I don't have to wait until then to know what it's going to be. I, I believe that now by faith. How do I know that my sins were forgiven? Objectively, at the cross. The answer is by faith now. That's what it's enjoyed. That's why the Apostle says what he says. This is why the Scriptures can speak of being forgiven or righteous before God, both in the past, present, and the future, because of faith. Faith believes these things. That, beloved, is the Word of God to you this morning. And I'm going to put it 
in the terms of the Apostle himself for your faith to lay hold of or for your hard heart to reject to your own destruction. The word we preach, the Apostle says, is this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Why? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word, the richness and the wonder of Thy Word, which is a word of grace, a word of salvation by pure grace, a word of righteousness that is provided by Thee and given to us and declared in our hearing, so that by faith we might believe, and believing might know and enjoy and experience this great salvation, this absolute deliverance from thy wrath and just judgment against our own sin. Help our unbelief and strengthen, O Lord, ever our faith and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.